kids head on back to the back, head to your class. As I said, it's good to be back. Always good to get a break, but Chris served us well last week, daring to talk about Bruno. So hopefully you guys were here for that. If you weren't, you have no idea what I'm talking about, and you'll need to go check that out. Uh, but Chris served us well, and this morning uh, I want you to turn not in 1 Kings, uh, but actually to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 10 uh, is where we're going to be this morning. Now we're continuing our series, Prophets and Kings, and we're going to keep talking about our hero, uh, Elijah, that we've been talking about. Uh, but we're going to take a little bit of a different uh, a- approach, and we're going to look at a very familiar story, one that you probably know well, but I'm not really sure we fully understand this story quite like we should. And I'm just going to jump right into it. I'm going to jump right into it. I'm going to start. I'm going to read this story and talk about this story, and then I, I want to come back and kind of tell you why we're talking about this story whenever we're in the middle of a series about Elijah. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, and behold, a lawyer stood up, stood up to put him to the test. This is a lawyer talking to, uh, that is now talking to Jesus, stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, key little phrase here, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he says, you're supposed to do all these things, go and, go and love your neighbor as yourself. But the guy says, so who is my neighbor? Uh, and Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was when he saw him, and he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So this is a story that is one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture. Even if uh, you've never held a Bible, you've probably heard some reference to this story. If you have not, uh, if you've not even have no, no no concept of what it's about, you know the story of the Good Samaritan. The clear uh, the, the, the 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 this message that is so well known, the story that is so well known, it's cited all over. Uh, the world in all kinds of different contexts. And the clear message is that our posturing and our standing before others means nothing if our actions don't follow and line up with all of that. Mercy is the posture that matters in the kingdom of God. This message becomes even more shocking when you consider the three men that Jesus uses as examples. The priest and the Levite were the spiritual voices of Israel. They were the, the priest and the servants of the priest in Uh, in Israel. The Samaritan, on the other hand, was a hated race, and no Jew would have ever considered help from a Samaritan. They They would have thought it below them that a Samaritan would even be able to help them, let alone 
that they would accept that help. They would never dream of being in that position where this this lesser, weaker group would have to help them. And then finally, we have this lawyer who started the whole conversation in seeking to justify himself, so seeking to kind of to, to justify who he is and make sure that he's good to go before God. Uh, he, he wasn't looking to ask Jesus the question, what do I need to do? Because Jesus gives that answer, says, love your, your neighbor. Uh, his, his answer to that kind of gives what the, the lawyer was actually uh, looking to do. He wasn't saying, what do I need to do? He was really asking the question, how little can I do and still get away with and still be good with God? How little can I do and me and God still be, still be good? That's basically the question that he is asking. I think we all can relate to that question. As much as we would love to judge this guy, we can all relate to this question. For many of us, that is the hallmark of our spiritual life. How little can I do and still be good with God? And the story of the Good Samaritan answers that question for us soundly. You do more than you think you have to. And in fact, you don't just make yourself look good, you actually need to do good. So now I have just taken a 40-minute sermon, and I have covered it in five minutes. You're welcome. Uh, the problem for you is I've got like another 40 minutes to go. So uh, that was, a, that was a, a, fi- a, a quick little five-minute sermon because there's a bigger point that I want to make in reading this very well-known story this morning. This, story, this morning, we're, we're picking back up on our series about Elijah, but we're going to take a couple of weeks, three weeks really, r- up through Easter, to look at our hero in a bit of a different way, or at least look at, look at him through the, the, the prism of the cross. Uh, and so what we're going to do by doing that is we're going to actually look at Jesus, and we're going to talk about what's known as the threefold office of Christ. We're going to talk about him as prophet, priest, and king. This week, we're kind of talking about prophet. We'll we'll, kind of do that each week. Next week, we're going to talk about him as king, and then we will talk about Jesus as really all three of those on Easter Sunday. So that's what you got coming for you. Uh, But we're still going to be talking about Elijah just in a little bit of a different different way, through the prism of the cross. And we spent some time looking at Elijah on his own terms, in his own time. But what we know is that the Old Testament serves us as a pointer to, to Jesus. And Elijah does that in a lot of different ways. And like I said, a couple of them we'll explore uh, this this morning. So there is much for us to cover. And I'll be honest, I told a couple of people this week, I think I may have bitten off more than I can chew. Uh, but we'll do that and we'll see where uh, things go. And we'll see how things uh, see how things go this morning. So the question you should be asking at this point then, as we deal with Elijah, the question should be that should be going through your, your mind if you're thinking is, What does the Good Samaritan have to do with either Elijah or the cross? What does the Good Samaritan have to do with either of those? I thought it was just a good story about how to be a moral person. So what does this have to do with Elijah, and what does this have to do with the cross at all? If you weren't asking that question, we're all caught up now. We're all on the same page, and this is what what we need to do. So to answer that question, what we've got to understand is, is, is what I would call the way glory works in the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk a lot about this idea of glory. So we're going to talk about the way glory works in the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk about the cross-shaped life that Jesus has called each of us to. So we're going to see if we can't get our answer by walking through chapter 9 and chapter 10 of the book of Luke. It's a lot for us to cover. Hopefully you got your Bibles. If not, most of it should come up on the screen. Uh, But there's a lot that we're going to look at. And what we're going to have to understand is how glory 
works and how it feels in God's kingdom. Now, glory is one of those funny, uh, funny things in the English language that can be very hard to define. It can be very hard for us to put words to it and say, this is what glory means. But it's very easy for us to understand and recognize. So we can't, it's one of those things, we can't put words to it, but we know it when it's in front of us and whenever we experience it. We may not be able to put it into, into, into words, but we can feel it and we can sense it. And so my question is, what comes to your mind whenever you think about glory? For some, it would be, uh, it, it would be an image like what we, we watched last night. Some, we, probably not all of y'all. But some of y'all watched last night on TV whenever you watched the Final Four for NCAA basketball. A team winning over its rival and cementing their legacy for decades to come, making shots that will be replayed thousands and thousands of times and recounting the greatest moments of their school's basketball history. For others, glory looks like political ambitions, either as a a candidate or even just a supporter of a candidate or a party. This weekend, my family spent uh, a few days in Washington, D.C., and uh, we we, we walked our our tails off going to all these different places and looking at all these different uh, things. And there are literal monuments to glory everywhere you go in that city, from Washington to Lincoln to Jefferson to Martin Luther King Jr., they are everywhere the monuments are there but it's not just there that you see these uh the that you see glory kind of portrayed it's also in the documents at the national archives that we got to see the declaration of independence the constitution the bill of rights all of those things the emancipation proclamation all of those things are preserved and 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 put under this glass and uh all the all the things that are that are that are there um those things Two are monuments to glory. Those things are there to be glorified. Glory can take a lot of different forms, and it can look a lot of different ways. Not only that, there is glory underneath the dome of the Capitol and in the Oval Office at the White House. Say what you want about politicians and politics. Say what you want about the guy that's there and the people that are are there on Capitol Hill. There's glory in the office. Like it or not, there is. And so that may be what comes to your mind when you think of glory, kind of achieving that place of honor and significance. For most of us, though, it's our own personal glory that is actually kind of at the center of our own being. It looks, like, it, it looks less like an exalted seat of power and more like kind of just earning approval from friends, from colleagues at work, from those that we spend our lives with. We work hard to gain their approval, to make them like us. And glory can look like a a promotion at work or simply being accepted by your crew of friends. Glory takes on a lot of different forms, but it all pretty much works in the same way. It's the sense of being, being a part of something. It's the sense of belonging and being celebrated. It's the sense of knowing that you are somehow worthy of a place of honor, worthy of a place of acceptance, worthy of a place of exalted dignity. This is, this is kind of what we know as glory. And it just plays itself out in a lot of different ways. In one way or another, most of us spend our lives chasing that feeling, chasing that knowledge, Right? If you're honest, if you're, if you're honest with me, you can say that most of your life is built around this idea of chasing that feeling of belonging to something or, or, or someone, whether it's at work or your friends or maybe here at church, wherever it is, like you, you want that sense of belonging. And when you get it, 
That is the, uh, the, 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 the goal of most of our lives, to be able to get to that place. Now, sometimes belonging may require that you, uh, that you achieve certain things, that you acquire certain things, maybe a degree, maybe a car, maybe a house, uh, maybe the, 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 the right look, the right job, uh, the right bank account, the right wife, the right kids, whatever. It may require that you, that you have these things, but the, the list is endless of what's, what's necessary for us to gain uh, approval, especially in our culture. There are no shortage of demands. And so my question for you is, what is that list for you? What is the list of things that you feel like you need in order to say, I belong in a place of honor and, and, and being exalted? What are the things that you need to make you feel like I'm here and I am accepted? Glory is what we're after. Every one of us, either through belonging and acceptance or exaltation and honor. But this is where Elijah's story can teach us about how that works itself out in the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God isn't built with the same end goals in mind that you and I are. We are built with the end goal of our glory from the day we are born. That is what we are about, us. And so our end goal is almost always built around our own glory. Now, we may couch that in all kinds of like, you know, super altruistic and, 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 and lovely language that says that, no, we really love everybody and all this different stuff. But in the end, what we want is acceptance and glory. But the kingdom of God does not have that end goal at all. You see, the kingdom of God isn't built with those same goals. Your belonging and your exaltation are not at the root of what God desires for you. In fact, he'll work hard against that in many ways for you. You see, the Good Samaritan isn't just a story about a good guy that we didn't see coming. It's about glory, and it's about the way of the cross of Jesus. The story of the Good Samaritan is in Luke 10, but if you back up just one chapter, then what you see is that it's kind of the capstone to a handful of different things that Jesus has to say all about glory, and it's stuff the disciples were completely baffled by, that they just did not see coming. I wish I could break down every one of these stories. I don't have time. It would take us weeks to get through all of it, but I'm going to fly through some of these. I'm not going to give, I'm not going to answer every question that pops up in these texts. I just want to kind of draw out a couple of things, and I hope you guys will kind of go on this ride with me here for a few minutes as we work our way through this. So we'll start in Luke 9, 18. Luke 9, 18. And my, my Bible breaks this passage. I'm going to read down into three sections, but I really think it should be held together in one section. I think they all work together. So Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, our hero here, Elijah. And others, the, that the one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, 
Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus has some pretty pointed questions to the disciples about who, who the crowd thinks that, uh, that Jesus is. And then he wants to know what the disciples think of him. Now the, 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 the crowd throws out this idea that he's Elijah. The crowd says maybe this is Elijah. Now the question is, why would it say, why, why would they bring up Elijah at all? Elijah's been dead for about a thousand years at this point. Why would they bring up Elijah at all? Well, if you go to the very last words, and for time I'm not going to read all this, but if you go to the very last words of the Old Testament, the very final verses of the Old Testament, what you see is that Malachi the prophet says, Elijah will return. And when Elijah returns, this is the sign you need to look for to know that God is back in your presence and back in your midst. And so some people think as Jesus has done all these miracles and is uh, going around doing all these different things, that he is that sign that they have been looking for. He is the return of Elijah. The, the, the disciples kind of recognize that, that they would say that, and it, it, it almost feels like they're throwing that out there like, they say you're Elijah, are you? Like, it's kind of like kind of what they're asking, but then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? The disciples recognize, at least Peter recognizes, no, he's not Elijah. He's the Messiah. He's the one that we, we really should have been looking for. Elijah was the forerunner. Now Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we should have been looking for at all. So at least they seem to have grasped that much, which is more than the crowds have grasped. But Jesus very quickly realizes they haven't fully grasped what that means, that the Messiah is here. So he says, you're not, you're not fully understanding things. Let me clarify some things, uh, some things for you. The part they haven't figured out is what Jesus goes on to say, and he starts talking about his death. He starts talking about how he's going to be betrayed. He starts talking about how the, the, the chief priests are going to kill him and, 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 and how those that would follow Jesus are going to have to take up their cross and they're going to have to suffer. That part didn't make any sense to the disciples. The Messiah was supposed to be the ruling conqueror. The, the, the disciple or the, the, uh, the Messiah was supposed to kind of recruit an army to go and take back Jerusalem. He wasn't supposed to die, and his followers weren't supposed to suffer. They were supposed to conquer and rule. But Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Jesus doesn't hesitate. He knows they haven't quite grasped this, and he wants to make sure that they hear that message loud and clear. So he starts talking about taking up your cross. And then the next scene that, that, that Luke transfers, if you're not paying attention, feels like a hard transition. Like, okay, he's done with that story, next story. But I don't think that that's what Luke's doing here. I think Luke is carrying a narrative all throughout chapters 9 and 10. Luke chapter 9, verse 28, we have the story of the transfiguration. I'm going to read it because if I summarize it, it'll take even longer because it's a weird scene. So Luke chapter 9, verse 28, let's just read this. Now, about eight days after these sayings, so he links the transfiguration to these sayings that have just been, uh, just been said, that, that Jesus has just said. Uh, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses, and there's our boy Elijah again, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and two men who stood with him. And as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So now we have this appearance of Moses and Elijah with Jesus. But it's the glory of Jesus and the future departure that is to come that are the topic of conversation, that are the focus of what happens in the transfiguration. And God comes to them and he reiterates that they need to pay attention to what Jesus is teaching and the words that Jesus is giving them. Don't neglect what it is that Jesus is saying. So Jesus is exalted and lifted up in glory in this moment, and two of his, three of his disciples are at his side. It's a spectacular event, and our hero Elijah is right there as a part of it. This is no accident for Luke that he tells this story in this way. Elijah was just mentioned in the previous story. He was just mentioned as what the crowd were saying, and now he comes up again. Now, if we keep going in Luke chapter 9, what we'll see is that that Elijah's kind of thumbprints are all over chapters 9 and 10. Um, Not quite as explicitly, but I think you'll be able to follow with me here and see that that I think it's all there. So if you keep reading, Jesus does uh, a, a miracle. He again predicts his death. This is important. This is the second time in one chapter, the third time, uh, if you include the, the reference to his departure in the transfiguration. One chapter in Luke, three different times he talks about his departure or his impending death. And again, the disciples don't really get this. Like, Jesus, why do you keep talking about your death? That's not how this is going to roll. You and I know this. You're going to roll into Jerusalem. You're going to take the throne, and you're going to be the king. And then in verse 46, we get this little exchange. Luke 9, 46. An argument ar- arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Stupid disciples. An argument arose among them as to which was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me uh, receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So they're fighting among one another about who is Jesus' favorite. They're fighting among one another about who's going to get to sit at the right hand when Jesus sits on the throne. And they're not talking about the heavenly throne. They're talking about when he marches in there and he takes Herod's throne from him and he puts himself on the throne and he says, I'm here. They want to know who's going to be vice president. They want to know who's going to rule and be a part of the court. They want to know who is the favorite. It's not a good look for the disciples. It's not a good look for them at all. But think about what they want here. What is it that they're going after? It's glory. They're going after glory. That's what they want. They want to be accepted, and they want to be placed in a seat of honor. They look like stooges in this story. They look like complete fools in the story. But you and I know we're just like them. We're just like them. We want our acceptance and our glory too. But what does Jesus say? He says it's not the one who seeks glory that will receive it. In fact, it's the one who will debase himself, who will lower himself to the forgotten, to the child who can get them nothing, the one who cares for them. This is not a sermon about prov kids, but I mean, 
There's something there for you there. But this, it's the one who serves the, 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 the child. It's the one who brings the, the, the kid in. It's the one who, who does something that they can get nothing in return. That's the one who will know glory in this kingdom that Jesus is trying to establish. So he's, he's pushing back on this stuff against the disciples. So you, can, you can feel the tension of how, how Jesus is got going in one direction and the disciples are trying to figure out, like, wait a minute, that's not, we don't go that way, we go this way. No, Jesus, you, you're not understanding. This is not how you're supposed to work. It's because they don't understand the way, the, glory, the way glory works in the kingdom of God. Now let's move on to verse 51 and a story that very clearly will bring back our memories of our boy Elijah. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. I told you we were covering a lot here. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Again, to be taken up. It's, a, it's another reference there. And he sent messengers ahead of him and who went ahead and entered, in, entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, so two people who were with him, on the transfiguration, who had just seen Elijah in the chapter, or just a few verses earlier, when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. So Jesus shows up in a Samaritan village. They didn't want to have anything to do with him, show him no hospitality, send him on, give him marching orders. No, Jesus, you can't come here. Nobody wants to receive you. Go away. Two of the disciples that were with, with him, they can't stand at the transfiguration. They can't handle this level of disrespect. They've just seen Jesus glorified in dazzling white, talking with Elijah and Moses. They don't need this kind of disrespect for Jesus, and so they've got a plan. Jesus? We just saw Elijah. Why can't we do the same thing Elijah did? Do you remember what Elijah did whenever he, he started this contest on, on Mount Carmel? Do you remember why he was doing it? It's because they weren't receiving God. It's because they had forgotten who God was. And, and, and Elijah says, let's have a contest and I'll remind you who God is. And so these guys are saying, look, if they don't understand who you are, I got an idea. We can do the same thing Elijah did. They remember the part of the story from Elijah where he brought down fire. They forgot chapter 19 where he was alone and whenever God said, I've got a different plan for you. And so this is a Samaritan village. You can make a pretty good case. It's not a direct line, but you can make a pretty good case that this is probably uh, descendants from King Ahab himself and that are the Samaritans. And so you've got this, all this kind of stuff intersecting here. And they say, Jesus, let's call down fire. You're a prophet, Jesus. Elijah could do it. You can do it. We're your disciples. We have that kind of power. Let's call down fire. That's the prophetic thing to do. And Jesus says, that's not the way this is going to work. He doesn't just say that's not the way this is going to work. He rebukes them for it. He is not impressed by their request. Jesus has other plans for the Samaritans. And wiping them out is not his goal, even though that feels very prophetic. That's what Elijah did. Remember, he kills the prophets of Baal after he's finished with the, the fire coming down from heaven. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is going to go a little bit differently. For Jesus, the path to glory would not be through fiery uh, exaltation, but through grueling humiliation. The way of the cross. And the disciples still needed to learn that lesson. We keep reading, we move ahead to chapter 10, and Jesus sends out 
Uh, move ahead to chapter 10. Jesus sends out the 72 uh, disciples ahead of his march to Jerusalem. He doesn't send them out to gather an army. He doesn't send them out to uh, kind of begin inscripting these soldiers into service so that he can march in and conquer the city. He sends them out as lambs among wolves. No weapons, no money, no knapsack, not even sandals. They don't go out with anything other than to go out and proclaim who Jesus is. These men are going not to just teach about Jesus, but to be taught about the way of the cross. They aren't on their way to conquer. They're on their way to serve. You then move down to verse 17. The 72 return with a good report of how amazed they are that the power they have been given, not military power they have been given like they had expected, but instead they had this power over spirits that they've never, they've never understood before, they've never had before. And then Jesus says this in verse 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes who see what you see, that get to see the things that you see, disciples. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see. And I just wonder if maybe, maybe Ahab and, and Elijah aren't in, in Jesus's mind here. Many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now think about Elijah on that mountain, how he saw that fire come down. And he, he, he you, you remember, he, he like struts his way back ahead of Ahab back to town. He struts his way back and what he expects to see is power. He expects to have power and for people to repent in mass and to come and to know and to understand who Jesus is. That's what he expects. And I wonder if this is not what Jesus means whenever he says that, that many prophets long to see what you see. Elijah longed to see and experience what you guys have just experienced, disciples. Elijah longed for that. But you know what Elijah got? Elijah got loneliness on a mountain. He didn't get what you guys have experienced. So I hope you appreciate what you guys have been able to do and to see and to hear. And then the very next verse begins this story of the Good Samaritan. So do you see what Luke is doing here? He is shaping expectations and desires. He is giving us what Elijah got on the mountain in a still, small voice. He's readjusting the idea of glory. And he's telling these guys, look, you got to experience a small measure of power, something that, that even Elijah didn't get to experience. But you're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to suffer. And not only that, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule and conquer like you want and like you expect. I'm going to die. That's the way this is going to be, because that's what glory looks like in the kingdom of God. It makes no sense, none whatsoever. Just like it doesn't make any sense for Elijah to, to do what he did, and then for God to say, I'm going to work in a different way that you wouldn't expect, Elijah. This is the story of Luke chapter 9 and 10. You, 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 guys, you, you all know the, the story of the soldier or the athlete that desires to win in order to impress or, or kind of catch the eye of a lady. He wants to, he wants to impress and kind of say, look at me, look at how grand I am. This is our idea of glory. The idea of glory for the kingdom of God turns that on its head, and it's actually as if the lady kind of tells the athlete, I want you to go and lose for me, and just lose and lose and lose and lose. I want you to lose, not win. And then somehow in the suffering and humiliation that the athlete experienced, he wins his bride. That's how the kingdom of God works. 
completely against how you and I want glory to work. We want glory to work to, to kind of exalt ourselves and then say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's all about God. Like, we want to be able to exalt and say, look how great I am. I mean, God's great too, but look how great I am. We want glory to work to say, make me accepted, make me fit in, make me, make me all these things that I so deeply desire. And God says, that's not the way glory works in the kingdom of God. In fact, you're going to have to deal with a lot of stuff you don't want at all. You're going to have to deal with a lot of stuff you never would even think about. And in the process, he's going to do exactly what we, what we sang about earlier. There's no wall you want, you won't kick down, right? Well, Jesus is going to kick down the walls. He's going to kick down the dividing walls between the Jews and the Samaritans. But you know what? The Jews don't want that. The Jews aren't interested in that. But that's exactly what God is going to do. He's going to work in ways, and he's going to give glory out in ways that we would not choose and that we do not want. He's going to kick down walls, but he's going to do it in ways that we wouldn't have chosen for him to. It's unthinkable, unthinkable for the Jews that God would save the Samaritans. It's unthinkable that he wouldn't have just, not only not just forgot about them and brought down fire, but that, that he would then tell a story where the Samaritan is the hero. Now that doesn't make any sense at all, but that's the way glory works in the kingdom of God. Jesus' followers must be prepared to take up their cross. And that's me and that's you. And that's an unthinkable thing if Jesus is about glory on this earth. But Jesus was prepared. It keeps talking about his departure. It says part of the reason why he wasn't received even in that Samaritan village is because he had set his face for Jerusalem. He was set for the cross. Jesus was prepared to die, die on a cross, wholly unthinkable for a Messiah. But friends, this is how it works. And this is why Jesus fulfills what Elijah could not. Elijah's view of glory was temporary and fleeting. Jesus' idea of glory is eternal and enduring. I want you to look at one more verse with me this morning. After the disciples marvel at their power that they've been given over the spirits, Jesus reminds them that their power is not really the most amazing thing at all anyway. It's not the most amazing thing about them that they can cast out unclean spirits. It's something else. Look in verse 19, chapter 10, verse 19. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That's amazing. But Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is the glory that we are after. And the only way, the only way to that glory is through the cross. There is no other way. That's why Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus knocks down all these walls. So that not just the Samaritans would come, but so the rest of us Gentiles could come. But so the rest of the Jews who had rejected the Messiah and all the prophets could come. He had to kick down those dividing walls of hostility, as Paul says. He had to knock all those walls down, and he does. The most amazing thing is not that we've been given all this power that we have. The most amazing thing is that he has not forgotten us. And not only has he not forgotten us, He's come for us. Not only has he not, not 
Not, not only has he come for us, he's chosen the way of the cross to utter humility. And he's done so for us. Friends, as we walk towards Easter over the next two weeks, we walk the way of the cross. And as we move on from Easter after that, and, and we get into to the, the, the summer, into the, the fall, and we start thinking about all the different ways in which our lives are, 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 are impacted, and we start thinking about all the different things that we want from our life, we have to crucify our idea of glory. And we have to say that we want to be like the Samaritan that cares for the one who can give him nothing in return. And we want to say that we want to follow Jesus and take up our cross, just as Jesus did. I'm not sure what it looks like for you to take up your cross this morning, to crucify your idea of glory. But I can assure you it's not the way you would have chosen on your own. But it's exactly what you need. And for all of us, the most amazing thing is not that we have been given anything from God, though any of that would be amazing. It's that God remembered us at all. And that our names can be written in heaven. I pray that's true about you this morning. I pray that you don't walk out of this place without it being true about you this morning. I pray that as we head toward the cross, just as Jesus is here, as we head toward the cross over the next few weeks and we look at what it means to be uh, this, the, the, a, a follower of Jesus and the, how Jesus fulfills these roles of prophet, priest, and king, I pray that you would know what it means to have your name written in heaven. And it's not because you can justify yourself as the lawyer started our story this morning. It's because of the cross. And I pray that you would put your faith and your trust in that. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess that the way of the cross is not the one we would choose. The way of the cross is so far away from our idea of glory and our, our things that we want to celebrate. The, the, the way of the cross is so far removed from the way that we think. The only thing that can help us is if you change our hearts and change our minds. Father, help us to learn the lesson that eventually the disciples would learn. That the cross is not the means to an end, but it is, in fact, the, the means to glory. Father, in those places where you call us to choose things we would never choose for ourselves, give us faith to trust you.